matter where you come from. If you dream to be something, if you work hard to get there, you can get there. Ed Ganey is on track to become Pittsburgh's first black mayor after beating incumbent Bill Peduto in Tuesday's Democratic primary. I'm a mayor for all, and I can't wait to work with everybody. You know, there's no Mayor Peduto supporters and Ganey supporters. There's Pittsburgh supporters, and we want to build a base that talks about how we improve this city. We'll also look at why it took months to get federal aid to students who get free and reduced lunches while they've been learning remotely, and public health efforts to vaccinate Pennsylvanians who don't speak English. It's Friday, May 21st, and this is Pittsburgh Explainer. I'm your host, Liz Reed. First up, WESA Government and Accountability Editor Chris Potter is here once again to talk about what happened on Tuesday. Chris, thanks for being here. Hey, it is good to be with you. So the big headline of the night was Ganey's win. How did he pull this off, or is it too early to tell? I mean, it's never too early to tell. I'm a professional. I can, I can start opining on things within seconds of their happening. Um, I think a bunch of things kind of um, came together. One is, uh, you know, that uh, the mayor, Bill Peduto, was running for his third term. A certain level of fatigue sets in. An incumbent mayor hasn't lost an election since uh, 1933, I think. But the fact is that the last person who ran for a third term was Tom Murphy, and he won only by 699 votes. Mr. Peduto was up against uh, a lot of factors, some of his own, if not making, uh, then at least kind of complicating. Uh, this is clearly a time, it's very clear, I think, that up and down the ballot here in Pittsburgh and all across the country, issues of racial uh, and social equity, issues of policing and the affordability of our, of our communities, all of these things are, are bubbling up in a, in a way that I haven't seen before, not just in Pittsburgh, but in cities all across the country. And, you know, Mr. Peduto had a lot of um, thoughts about these ideas. He had proposed various solutions. But um, as, uh, as, as Rich Fitzgerald, the county executive, told me um, the night of the election, this is an impatient electorate. People are uh, looking to have some tangible results there. And I think what he, he just kind of got swamped by that. He just wasn't able to kind of get out ahead of it. He did what he could. He started his campaign talking about the two Pittsburghs. He showed up at every debate. He didn't, you know, he didn't take any of this for granted, but he just could not get out in front of it. And, you know, I think too, he was, he was to some extent, and, and this is a little harder to quantify, you know, there, there were four candidates in this race. Um, and one of them, retired police officer, Tony Moreno, you know, I, I don't know that a lot of people who voted for Tony Moreno, uh, who, uh, was kind of a almost a Trump-style Democrat in some ways. I don't know a lot of those folks would have voted for Bill Peduto, but there were definitely parts of the city that uh, Peduto won four years ago, like Carrick or the 31st Ward, uh, where Mr. Uh, Moreno ended up taking the vote. So, I mean, I think if you really start to put all of that stuff together, you just had you just had a coalition of things uh, coming together and making it tough. And the fact of the matter is, is that the, the Ganey campaign and his supporters turned out big. Big numbers uh, turnout in a lot of the black communities, uh, wards and districts in the city. And overall citywide turnout was like 39%. Um, back in 2017, the last time Bill Peduto stood for re-election, it was, it was 25%. And I think that says a lot. It's worth noting, too, that the lead came when the elections division started tallying the in-person votes. That's really when Ganey started to make up the ground. Um, I want to push back on um, the comment you shared from Rich Fitzgerald. Voters gave Bill Peduto eight years. Is eight years, I mean, does that make voters impatient? 
No, I'm just. I, I think what I'm saying there, and I think what I think what uh, what Rich Fitzgerald's point was is people were tired of waiting. I mean, that was the whole that was the whole argument of the Ganey campaign. I, I, it was. The, I think the very first interview he did was with me, and he said, "If if you haven't done this in eight years, what makes you think it's going to happen another four? And I think that was Rich's idea: is that people were tired of waiting at this point. This is, and it was a different electorate. Like I said, I mean, a lot more people turned out this time than turned out in 2017, and they turned out because they were ready for some stuff to start happening. So it's worth noting that Ed Ganey is not mayor-elect. He is the Democratic nominee for mayor of Pittsburgh. So what happens this fall? Well, what the big sort of X factor here that we don't know about yet is there were more than 2,100 um, write-in ballots on the Republican side. And again, for purposes of comparison, there were about 700 write-in ballots in 2017. You're always going to have some people who just, you know, they're Republican voters. They're there to vote on other races like the statewide, you know, ballot questions. And so they just, you know, write in whatever they want to write in. But at this kind of volume, my guess is um, there there was an effort to, to put a specific name on there. And it's just going to be a matter of time before we find out what that name was. It takes a little, it takes more time to compile that um, than other kinds of results. Um, as, as I think I said here uh, the last time I was on, Liz, it would not surprise me at all if the name um, that pops up more than any others is Tony Moreno, because uh, he had a message that I think a lot of Republicans might um, might resonate with, and, and not even so much a message, maybe as a sort of a, a comportment and a style. Um, so it's possible that we might be seeing the, both those gentlemen back in November. In addition to the mayor's race, progressives and candidates of color had a pretty good night across the board. Two activists backed ballot measures that banned no-knock warrants in the city and solitary confinement at the county jail both passed overwhelmingly. There were several progressive judges elected to the Court of Common Pleas. What is the takeaway from these wins? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, we're, we're seeing this this trend, and it's it was all up and down the ballot here in Pittsburgh, and it's uh, the same trend was taking hold in Philadelphia, uh, where you had a district attorney um, who had been criticized by police for being very, you know, uh, too lenient, um, but really has sort of a, a whole different idea about criminal justice. You're seeing a lot of these ideas take hold in urban enclaves, especially um, amongst people of color, amongst white progressives um, who are who are allied with them. And you saw that in these ballot questions and you saw it and, and, and especially, I think, meaningfully in these court of common pleas races. You know, there were nine seats up for grabs and a lot of the same folks, a lot of the same progressives who backed Ed Ganey backed a slate of eight candidates, they called them the slate of eight, who, you know, had, had really different ideas about how to do criminal justice when it comes to things like abolishing cash bail um, and diverting people away from uh, criminal prosecution where possible. Of those eight candidates, five won. Um, and when you look at the, and then we're talking about the Democratic side here, but, you know, that, that is, that is going to carry a lot of extra weight going into November. And of the nine who won, six were women uh, and four were black. I, I don't know that I have seen in my quarter century career, I don't know that I've seen that kind of demographic shift take place so quickly. And I think, again, it reflects it reflects a, a political moment where changing criminal justice and, and addressing racial equity and, and also being sure that we have a, a more inclusive uh, government, not just when it comes to the people sitting in our legislative bodies, but when it comes to the people sitting at the benches and handing out justice on a day to day basis. There was really, I think, a very strong commitment to that. And you just saw it everywhere on Tuesday. Five school board seats were also up for grabs. How did that pan out? 
Yeah, that that's a bit that's a bit more of a complicated question because um, as with judicial candidates, school board members can cross file and run as Republicans and Democrats at the same time, and a couple of the incumbents did do that. For example, Terry Kennedy, uh, who's been an incumbent in uh, District Five, lost her uh, race on the Democratic side to uh, Tracy Reed, um, who's part of a uh, broader sort of coalition to reform the school board. But Terry Kennedy is is uh, was also running as a Republican and won there. So those two will be meeting again. There's a couple of other races that are like that. But what we really saw here overall was an attempt by a group, uh, and they call themselves Black uh, Women for Better Education, to really change the course of the school board. You know, about six years ago, um, a slate of candidates, largely backed by the Pittsburgh Federation of Teachers, that's the teachers union, won a number of seats on the school board, essentially establishing a majority that's persisted to this day. Um, it's that majority that really pushed back on some of the educational changes that were sought by people like the Gates Foundation, um, a lot of efforts to sort of test teachers to try and really gauge student and teacher performance on the basis of tests. A lot of that stuff, there's a lot of pushback on it, and that's what got those folks elected six years ago. What we have now is perhaps the pendulum, some people at least trying to push the pendulum in the opposite direction. There are concerns that the superintendent, Anthony Hamlet, who's been selected and largely supported uh, by this current board, that Anthony Hamlet isn't really the answer for the district because there are still persistent problems with achievement gaps and things like that. So so you're seeing some folks really try to push back on that. And they did, uh, you know, they did make some some headway. Um, I don't know that it's enough headway to, to change the board's direction overnight or even after the elections uh, this coming uh, fall. But, I, you know, I think it's I think you will see a different kind of school board a year from now um, as a result of some of the changes that are taking place. Thanks for your reporting, Chris. Thank you so much. We'll be right back after a quick break. 90.5 WESA would like to thank you, our listeners. The WESA Newsroom was named the 2021 Regional Edward R. Murrow Award winner for overall excellence in large market radio. And we couldn't have done it without your support of our fact-based journalism. 90.5 WESA, stay connected. When the pandemic forced schools to switch to remote learning, Congress passed federal aid to cover the cost of the food students on free and reduced cost meal programs would have eaten in the school cafeteria. But there have been a lot of roadblocks in getting that money, about a billion dollars, to Pennsylvania families. And just last week, the state started sending out money to cover meals from last fall. WESA reporters Kate Giamarisi and Sarah Schneider looked into what went wrong, and Sarah is here to talk about it. Hi. Hi, Liz. Can you outline some of the obstacles in this process? Like, why did it take so long? Sure. Like you said, um, there have been a number of bureaucratic hurdles that delayed the distribution of this funding. And so my colleague, Kate Giamrisi, has been asking the Department of Human Services about this money for months. You know, this money was passed last March. This is money that families would be getting for kids who have been learning online. And so this is money to feed them during the day because they're, they're growing kids and they still need to eat a lot of food. So the delays have been because, you know, more than $1 billion was promised to families. And the Department of Human Services went back to the federal government and they said, this is the plan we have. And uh, there are 500 school districts in Pennsylvania. We want to make sure that all kids have access to some of this funding. And that plan was shot down. And so then the Department of Human Services had to go back and readjust the plan. And so this was under the Trump administration. And then the, you know, the money came through and, 
we think we're going to have another round of funding for families. And then the local, the, the State Department of Human Services had uh, quite a headache in trying to figure out how to, you know, come up with a calculation to distribute benefits for 500 school districts in Pennsylvania. And, you know, not all school districts operated the same. That was a huge headache this past year that some school districts were fully online, some were fully remote, some had a hybrid of both. And so now the Department of Human Services in Pennsylvania has to figure out how do we calculate who gets what money, because it's based on how long your kid was learning from home. Kate was asking, all the time. When is this money coming? When is this money coming? And they just kept saying, we're trying to figure it out. We're trying to figure it out. And then finally, the uh, second round of funding went through the week of May 10th, and officials say two more payments are going to go out in June and July. Even though students were at home, school districts like Pittsburgh Public still had to provide meals. Like, did that help alleviate the problem? For some families, it did. Yeah, every school district that, you know, serviced students who received free and reduced meals were still obligated to provide meals. And Pittsburgh Public is a huge district, 22,000 students, and it said it did not have the capacity to deliver those meals to families as, you know, some of the suburban districts in Allegheny County did. And so they had these grab-and-go sites where families would have to come to the school during a specific time window. It was normally like uh, in the middle of the day and pick up food and then go back to remote learning. And oftentimes, you know, it, it was it was inconvenient for a lot of families and it, it is still inconvenient for a lot of families because they have to be at home learning, you know, and, and a lot of parents have to be monitoring their, their children while they're they're doing this online learning and it's it's hard to, to get to these sites. And so, you know, food wasn't wasted because all of the food is prepackaged because of safety concerns with COVID, but the, the program wasn't used. I talked to Curtisine Walker, she's the food services director at Pittsburgh Public Schools, and she said, you know, fewer than 50% of students use this program since March 2020. Oh, wow. So when there were these families who maybe didn't have transportation or the schedules work out, I mean, I think about my own life, like, it's challenging to get anywhere within a specific amount of time when you work full time and have have kids. Were there other ways like did other groups step in to try to help feed kids as the federal relief was delayed and as there were these still obstacles to getting the, the PPS meals? Right. Yeah. A lot of groups had to step up to help fill that gap while families were waiting for that funding or, you know, families that as we said, couldn't get to these grab-and-go sites. And so there are um, learning hubs. This is a new thing that started during the pandemic. Um, Community groups, churches, after-school programs opened up their doors during the day, and so they have kids come in and do their remote learning in their space. And so these groups have have had to find ways to feed kids. And um, some of them have been going to the grab-and-go sites and then getting that food for their students and then taking it back. But, you know, I spoke to the Boys and Girls Clubs of Western Pennsylvania, and some of their sites service eight school districts. And so that's just not logistically possible to go pick up for eight, you know, all over the county. And so they've leaned heavily on, you know, foundation support and um, donations from like Eaton Park and the food bank. And so there's quite a bit of frustration with these providers or these providers are having with the state and federal government because they're saying, we're trying to, to feed kids and you're not making it easy and the school districts are not making it easy. There's a lot of frustration and especially as the summer is approaching, kids have fewer options to get food. And so, you know, there's a real concern among providers in Pittsburgh. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I understand the logistical challenges for the state that you laid out with sort of all the things they have to take into account to figure out, like, which family gets how much money. But from the family's point of view, it's just easier to get the cash, right, than to have to, like, be somewhere at a certain time. I mean, what did families tell you? What did parents tell you about the impact of these payments coming in now? Yeah, I mean, parents are frustrated. This is money that was guaranteed for them, and they were supposed to get it. And so now they are spending their time going to the food pantry or uh, getting donations from the food bank or driving across town to go get food at their kid's school that they're not attending in person. And so it's put quite a strain on families. And the Department of Human Services has acknowledged that. My colleague, Kate G. Marisi, spoke to a family who has, you know, had to utilize every donation they can get. And they're, they're going to the food pantry and it's just quite a strain unnecessarily. The Department of Human Services is aware of that and they said that they are trying their best to make sure that these next two payments in the summer will go out on time. Sarah, thank you for your reporting. Yeah, thank you, Liz. We'll be right back with one more story after another quick break. Friday, May 28th is WYEP's fourth annual Wear Your Music T-shirt to Work Day. Even if you're working from home or not at all, show off your favorite music T-shirt and rep your favorite band. On that day, share a photo of you and your shirt on social media with the hashtag MusicShirtDay so everyone can see it. Get together with other music lovers virtually for Wear Your Music t-shirt to work day, Friday, May 28th. More information at wyep.org t-shirt. As COVID-19 vaccination efforts continue, public health officials have recognized the need to target specific communities to overcome things like vaccine hesitancy and barriers to healthcare access. This week, WESA's Sarah Bowden reported on the unique difficulty of reaching people who don't speak English, and she joins us now. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Liz. What are some of the unique barriers that non-English speakers face to getting vaccinated? Well, to answer this question, I would just encourage you to consider all the steps that you or I took to get our vaccination. So we had to figure out where that vaccine was located, how to get there. Uh, we had to communicate with the providers giving us the shot. Maybe you had to find childcare. Some people maybe had to take public transportation to get to the vaccination site. Um, you know, and some of these Things are easier than others and figuring out how to get a vaccine, but it all becomes so much more difficult when you're not an English speaker and you're trying to get this life-saving vaccination uh, when nobody speaks your language. Um, it goes from maybe a pain in the neck to, in some cases, nearly impossible. Also, I, you know, a lot of people rightly have a lot of questions about the vaccine safety because there have been some really goofy things kind of flying around the internet, like fears about, will the vaccine harm my fertility? And of course, the answer is no. But when you're seeing things on Facebook or Snapchat or whatever, you rightly want to ask your provider questions about the safety of that vaccination. But if you can't do that in a language that your provider understands, um, that's also going to cause people to be very cautious or not want to get the vaccination. Is this a simple matter then of translating materials to a variety of languages? No, I think that there's a difference here between translation uh, versus interpretation. So I think most of us have used Google Translator. I was a very poor Spanish student and relied on Google Translator and got a lot of really bad marks because a literal translation 
often sounds super wonky. Uh, what you need is an interpreter to sit and have a conversation or facilitate the conversation between you and a provider to answer questions. Uh, and that uh, service should be culturally appropriate because, you know, the way an American might interpret information or an interaction uh, might be very different from a person who spent most of their life in another country, in another culture. You know, there are other things to consider. For example, you know, some people who are here who are undocumented, they might feel unsafe going to a government facility. Like, for example, the Castle Shannon Fire Department might feel unsafe for people who are here undocumented because they're fearful that any interaction with a government official might incur deportation. And so you really have to be thoughtful about the settings and the people who are providing this service. So what's being done to help these folks? Well, right now it's really piecemeal. Um, a lot of the nonprofits I've spoken to say, you know, they, they're not getting any additional government they're not getting any additional government support for this work. That might be changing in the hopefully not so distant future. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says that they have like three billion dollars to expand uh, vaccine access programs, and they say that at least seventy-five percent of this funding must go to initiatives that focus on increasing vaccine access and uptake among racial and ethnic minority communities. But you know, government agencies—they're um, not known for speed, and this money has not had an impact yet. Okay, so if the government is not doing this uh, just yet, who is doing this work? Well, I spoke to a couple organizations, including Casa San Jose and the South Hills Family Center, who have both been organizing clinics for the populations they serve, Nepali speakers, Korean speakers, Spanish speakers. You know, they're doing it uh, just kind of very piecemeal. They're, in some cases, collaborating with other nonprofits or UPMC or Allegheny Health Network, and... You know, they're finding where to set up these clinics and um, they're reaching out to the people that they serve and letting them know that the vaccine is going to be at these sites at this time and that it's safe and, um, you know, encouraging them to get this life-saving medical intervention. But again, they're, they're not doing this with additional government funding. They're doing it because it needs to be done and no one else is doing the work. I understand you went to um, one of these clinics, one that served the Nepali community. What was it like? Was it busy? Yeah, it was kind of busy. It was um, It was in a church. It was at the Whitehall Presbyterian Church in the church's social hall. And UPMC was collaborating with the South Hills Family Center to do this work. Uh, so you walk in. And uh, people are greeted by a medical interpreter, and they're asked what language they feel most comfortable receiving their care in. Because in addition to Nepali, there were other speakers there, like Karin and Burmese and Kenya Wanda. Uh, a lot of speakers of those languages are also in the area. And they walk in, and um, then they get their medical service in the language that they're most comfortable in. And they're kind of shepherded through uh, with an interpreter or an iPad that connects them to a medical interpreter. And, you know, and then they, you know, they get their shot and then they wait around uh, for 10 or 15 minutes. And I think their UPMC was giving out cookies. And so they got their cookie and they went home. And uh, this clinic was staffed by people that they were familiar with because uh, it was staffed by the family center staff who, you know, they interact with regularly. So it wasn't like they were going into this like random pharmacy or medical center that they didn't know anyone 
uh, and nobody spoke their language. It was, you know, all the, the staff I saw at this clinic, you know, they were greeting people that they knew constantly. And there's like, oh, this person's part of our family program or this person, um, you know, I've known them for five or six years. So it was a very uh, community sort of familial, warm, welcoming environment, which I think probably made a big difference. Sarah, thanks for your reporting. Thanks, Liz. That's our show for this week. Pittsburgh Explainer is produced by Katie Blackley. Our editor is Lucy Perkins. Thanks for listening. Let's talk next week. Thank you.